This summer, we are doing a series on previews of the Christ, what the Old Testament tells us about Jesus. These are uh, standalone sermons because people kind of drop in and out during the summer, um, but I do want to recap them a little bit just so you get an idea of what it looks like for, these, um, for us to make these connections. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is the true Adam who is obedient to God's will. Last week, we talked about how uh, Joseph went down into the pit and God raised him back out to save many people from starvation and how that uh, gives us an idea of uh, what it would be like when Jesus went down into the pit and God raised him back out to save us all from sin and death. Uh, I will also note both of those sermons were sub-25 minutes. So this, uh, if, if this one goes a little bit longer, please keep that in mind. Uh, this week we're going to look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount and see what it means for Jesus to be the God of the law. Let's read our text from Matthew this morning. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you give us your word and you promise that it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. We trust this morning that you will use the word to speak to our hearts, um, that you will give us grace through this message this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is my third week preaching in a row, so I'm going to be a little bit personal here, and I'm going to tell you something that I know you don't expect. It may surprise you, but being a good lawyer it does not necessarily make someone a good spouse. All right, uh, I got some laughter there, but not a lot of surprise faces. And I think you know why, right? Lawyers are experts in statutory law. We can tell you uh, what it means to follow the letter of the law. We can tell you how to obey the law with the detailed behavioral requirements of that law. But there's a different kind of law in relationships, isn't there? Right? We can call it relationship law. Let's look at gift giving, for example. Right? A lawyer can tell you, yes, you should give a gift to your spouse or your friend on their birthday. But that's not really enough. Right? You need a different kind of law. You need a different understanding of the law to realize you actually have to think about what kind of gift you're going to get this person. You have to think, is this what they really might want? Is this going to be something that's good for them? Relationship law is about more than de detailed behavioral requirements. 
It's about actually wanting the flourishing of the other person. In our text this morning, Jesus, uh, we have to understand the context here. Jesus is often accused in the Gospels of not uh, being an upholder of the law, right? In Luke 15, uh, the Pharisees accuse Jesus, they grumble about him being lax on sin. And Jesus is responding here to that accusation. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Jesus doesn't just uphold the law. He is actually the true lawgiver. What we saw in our sacred reading this morning was Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the law from God. In our text this morning, Jesus goes up the mountain, but he does not receive the law from God. He gives the law. Jesus is the lawgiver that Moses was revered to be by the Pharisees, but but was not. Moses was a lesser lawgiver. He handed down the law that he received. Jesus gives the law. So we're going to look at three points this morning. First, what was the law? What is the law? Second, what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? And third, what does this fulfilled law mean for us? When God gave the law to Moses, this was part of a covenant ceremony, right? These were the terms of God's covenant with his people. That's why we read about the blood and the sacrifices. These were the binding, legal binding rituals in the ancient Near East that said, we will obey. Today we would sign on the dotted line. But they were the terms of the God's covenant. They were how we as a people will be in relationship to God. It was... I think if you, if you read um, about the law in Exodus or Leviticus, you'll see that it, it's statutory law, right? It's you shall not do X or you shall do X. But that wasn't where it was supposed to remain, right? Throughout Scripture, we kind of see this, this development, this push. We can even see it uh, in Exodus and Leviticus, um, but we don't really have time for that this morning. Um, but there's a, there's a push for it to become relationship law. In the prophets, we read uh, God telling his people, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God is saying there is, stop, stop focusing so much on these statutory terms. Stop focusing so much on these detailed behavioral requirements and learn what it means to love me and to love my people, to love the things that I love, right? God did not mean this to be a uh, just an outward thing. This was always supposed to lead into a relationship. The, even John the Baptist calls this out, right? He is coming to the people saying, there is a greater righteousness that you need here and you don't have it. Israel was supposed to live into this, this law, this 
broader understanding of the law and be a light to the nations, to all people, so that they could see the beauty of what it looked like when God and his people lived in relationship with each other. And Israel did not do that. The second thing we have to see about the law is that this was a divine accommodation. Okay? Um, the, word, the way Calvin talks about it is this is like um, a nurse speaking baby talk to a small child, right? This was the very beginnings of what it looks like to be righteous. We, we sometimes think of the Mosaic Law as, as this high standard that nobody could achieve, but that's, that's not what Moses thinks of it as. In Deuteronomy 30, this is what he says. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off, but the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In in Matthew, we also see Jesus refer back to this law. In fact, including here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He, he expands the law. He builds on the law. For example, in divorce, right? He says, Moses allowed you to divorce. But I say, you shouldn't divorce. What's he saying there? Well, Moses established the beginnings Right? He established the beginnings of what it looks like for husband and wife to live faithfully together. He got rid of some of the abuses of the time, of the culture, um, when Israel first received this law. But Jesus wants us to live into a greater vision of marriage. He wants us to live into a vision of marriage that doesn't even contemplate divorce. This is... Um, this strikes home for me when, when we're trying to eat with our two-year-old, right? We don't say you have to eat everything on your plate. We say you have to take two bites, right? That's kind of what the Mosaic Law is here. You just have to take two bites. This is the unfulfilled law. So what does it mean when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law? Well, Fulfillment in Matthew is kind of a technical term. Uh, one of the first things we read is that Jesus came up out of Egypt. His, his family fled to Egypt to escape a murderous king, and then they came back. And Matthew says, well, that fulfills what the prophet said, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, if you go back and read Hosea, Hosea is not talking about some future prediction. Hosea is talking about Israel. Israel. God called Israel out of Egypt. And what Matthew says is that, that picture actually is a picture of Jesus. Right? Um, it's not about the end. It's not about a prophecy that uh, predicts a special future event. But there are some completion aspects. It's, an acorn is fulfilled by growing into an oak right? A dating relationship is fulfilled in marriage. You wouldn't say, well, I got married, that relationship is fulfilled, it's done, right? No, that, that wouldn't make any sense. A fulfillment is bringing into a broader, a better reality. Um, 
we see how these, how sacrificial rites were fulfilled in Jesus, right? So the sacrificial system always pointed to Israel's need to be reconciled to God, right? There was this gap between Israel and God, and the sacrificial system told them, hey, no, there needs to be a sacrifice in order for you to be together again. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. It's pointing to Jesus as he does provide that reconciliation for us. But when Jesus says that he fulfills the law, he's not saying it's done now. He's saying, I am giving you a new understanding of God's commands. Not just restrained outward behavior, but heart renovation. I want to move you from statutory law to relationship law. I want you to see what it looks like to live in relationship with God. So, what does this fulfilled law mean for us? I think one of the places that we run into some trouble is when we ask the question, are we supposed to obey God's law? Uh, Matthew gives us this Sermon on the Mount, right? This God, Jesus pointing us to these better understandings, right? Don't just, don't murder. Don't harbor unjustified anger, right? Don't even, don't even disdain your brother. And there are some who, who say, well, Jesus isn't actually being serious about that command. He just wants us to see that we can't live up to it. And what, what that's supposed to do is provoke us to grace, right? We just need to turn to Jesus, realize there's no way we're going to be able to do all this. And that's, that's true. That is one of the uses of the law. But our Reformed tradition has identified another use of the law, and that's to teach us how we should live, how God wants us to live as Christians. God actually does want us to be righteous, to be His people, to live in relationship with Him and with each other. The uh, Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says it this way, our Lord has not come to make it easier for us or make it in any sense less stringent in its demands on us. His purpose in coming was to enable us to keep the law, not to end it. Jesus wants us to, to live in this righteous way. He wants to see the world transformed by this radical way of living. There are two problems that we often run into when we address the law, and they happen because we separate God from the law, okay? The first is legalism. Legalism is not just the idea that we need to keep the law, okay? Legalism is a separation of the law from God that says, first, you keep the law, and then you'll get to God, okay? That's how the Pharisees understood it. The Pharisees said, well, I'm going to do these external requirements, and then I'll be saved. And that's, 
that's a distortion of the law because it pulls these two things apart. The other, the other problem we run into is what's called antinomianism. And it also pulls the law away from God, but it says, hey, you don't have to obey the law and you can get to God. And neither of those are good understandings of the law because they pull the law away from God. They misunderstand this relationship law as statutory law. They say, hey, it's all, the law is all about these detailed requirements, and you either have to keep them or you don't, but either way, it's irrelevant to who God is. And that's not what the law is. The law shows us who God is and who God wants us to be. And it's, it also shows us how we can flourish. God wants us to live in this, in this good way, right? It's not, it's not something that's designed for our harm. It's designed so that we can live in the best way possible. God can't be separated from this law, and we can't either. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. We see in 1 John, in James, these same ideas. Love those God loves, right? Take care of the poor. Take care of your brothers and your sisters in the church. Love what God loves. We also see Jesus teaching us to hate what God hates. We see this in Matthew 5, but also in 1 Corinthians. Hate sexual immorality. Hate lust. Hate the objectification of God's image bearers. As, as we do these things, we start to fall more in love with God, too, right? When you love the th same things that God loves, when you hate the same things that God hates, it's easier for you to be in right relationship with God. As you, I mean, this is, this is relationship law, right? As you love someone, you love what they love. You hate what they hate. You become unified. You, be, you come together. Moses gave us this cloudy picture of who God is, right? Don't murder. Don't bear false testimony, right? But Christ gives us a clear picture. He's the true lawgiver. The, the Reformers pick this up. When we read the Heidelberg Catechism, right, it reflects on the Ninth Commandment. Don't, don't bear false witness. But it doesn't just say, hey, this is a prohibition on lying. What it says is, no, we sh God wants us to become people who love the truth, who speak it candidly, who defend our neighbor's good name, right? It's, it's more than just this prohibition. It's an insight into who God is and who he wants us to be. In Galatians, Paul talks about the Mosaic law as a tutor, right? As a schoolmaster. Um, some of you are teachers, and you understand this. There's, sometimes you set rules for your students in hopes that this guides them on the path to a better understanding. We do it with our two-year-old. Don't play with plugs, right? Now, we hope, we hope that someday he is actually able to use plugs. We hope maybe he even can become an electrician, right? But right now, he's not ready for that. 
He needs, to he needs to not play with plugs. And eventually, he will grow into this. He will grow. His righteousness will grow. One commentator says that righteousness in the book of Matthew is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. And the example that we're given is a righteous man named Joseph. Okay? And, and what does Joseph do? Joseph is identified as righteous in doing what? Well, he learns that Mary is pregnant, and instead of condemning her, he decides to have mercy on her and to divorce her quietly. Right? Now, is that a law? Is that, if you read the entire Old Testament, you will not find God saying, if you find that your spouse has been unfaithful, you should divorce them quietly instead of condemning them. That is not in the Old Testament. But that is person character. That is Joseph living in accord with who God is. God cares for his people. God cares for the least. God cares for the young girls who find themselves pregnant. And God does not condemn them. So Joseph doesn't either. God wants us to become his image-bearing people. To live with him, to glorify him, and enjoy him. And we do this by living through the law. Okay? Now, I realize that it may sound like this is kind of a strange idea. Often we are told that the law is not um, a good thing. Okay? So I, I want to read John Piper. I normally don't quote John Piper, but I want you to see that this is not just the Reformed tradition, right? This is not just uh, me making this up or me and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and the Reformed tradition. No. John Piper writes, or he's, this is, was in a speech. We must have more than the message of justification. We must have more than no condemnation, no hell, no guilt. Justification by faith is a means to something more and greater. The propitiation of God's wrath is a means to something more and greater. Forgiveness of sins is a means to something more and greater. Escape from hell is a means to something more and greater. Redemption from slavery is a means to something more and greater. Ultimately, finally, that more and greater is God himself. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it like this. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. To see God, to know God, to have God as a companion, to enjoy God, to be irradiated with the glory of God, to finally, in some suitable measure, reflect God, to become at last a fitting echo of the excellence of God. Brothers and sisters, that is a million times greater than justification and forgiveness. So when Jesus says in our text, you need to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to become that. I want you to be a reflection of God's glory. Not just by living according to these outward standards of behavior, but because your heart has been renovated. 
when we see the Pharisees in the Gospels, right, what they're condemned by is their, their hypocritical religion, okay? Some of the characteristics of this, right, their behavior changes based on the recipient of that behavior, right? Do you value your relationships differently based on what those relationships can provide for you? If it's a church leader or a business owner, do you speak more respectfully, more kindly? Um, do you focus on being technically right? Right? That's, um, I, I sometimes encounter this discussion, is it wrong to play games in which you have to lie? Right? Well, I mean, that's a pretty technical application of the commandment. And it would be one thing, right, if, if that's just something you have a real difficulty with. My sister-in-law just can't lie. She's just terrible at it, right? That's, a, that's great. That's, that's actually, you know, that's the kind of person you want in your family. Also, the kind of person you want to play these games with. But are you at the same time, right, do you omit important information, right? Maybe that's not technically lying. I didn't say something false, but I didn't give the whole truth when I was asked, right? That's, that's this focus on technical specificity as opposed to the bigger picture. Or loving exactitude and, and strict definitions more than people. I think sometimes we see this in the abortion debate, right? It's, it can be sometimes too easy for us, I think, to just say, all abortions, you know, it's, we don't have to ask any questions, we can just say, evil. When we look closer, when we talk to people, when we hear their stories, we start to realize, sometimes there is just a really, really broken world. And people are trying to deal with it as well as they can, and there are no good choices. Right? That, that is difficult. Those are difficult things to say. And it, it gives up some of that certainty, some of that exactitude. And yet, we need, to, we need to have those conversations. We need to live sometimes in the gray. Because this isn't statutory law. The law of God is not statutory law. It's relationship law. This is Dr. Lloyd-Jones again. You do not become Christian by just refraining from some actions and doing others. The Christian is a man who is in a particular relationship to God and whose supreme desire is to know him better and to love him more truly. So, finally, how do I accomplish this? And I just want to know, we are over 25 minutes, but we don't have communion this morning, so we've got a few extra minutes. How do we accomplish this? The answer to this is, we're going to go back to Moses, okay? In Exodus 32, Moses comes down from the mountain, and he's bringing the law of God down with him to the Israelites. And what does he find? He finds the Israelites engaging in a pagan orgy to a golden calf. And what he says, 
He says to the Levites, to the, the priests of God, he says, strap on your sword and essentially go back and forth through the camp killing people until this ends. And scripture tells us, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. When the law comes to us, in our sinful state, all it can do is bring death. Because we cannot, we are just revealed as sinful. The law shows us that we fall so far short. Apart from God's grace, we are enslaved in our sin and we cannot be righteous. But, but in Christ, God does offer us this grace. See, the true lawgiver is also the spirit giver. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit. And this is what we read in Acts 2 about Pentecost. At the end, summing this all up, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added, to that, day, added that day about 3,000 souls. When Moses brought the law, 3,000 people died. Jesus didn't just bring the law, he also gave his spirit and 3,000 people were brought to life. God gives us His Spirit to make us righteous. God reverses the law. I just want to read one more excerpt from Dr. Lloyd-Jones, and I will note, he preached two sermons on this text, both an hour long. So, you're getting, you're getting off easy. He, he says, For to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ means not only that my sins are forgiven because of his death for me on the cross of Calvary's hill, but also that I have been given a new life and a new nature. It means that Christ is being formed in me. The man who has been born again and who has the divine nature within him is a man who is righteous, and his righteousness does exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He is no longer living for self and his own attainments. He is no longer self-righteous and self-satisfied. He loves God, yes, unworthily, alas, but he loves him and longs for his honor and his glory. His desire is to glorify God and to keep and honor and fulfill his law. In this grace, God works in our hearts so that we can surpass that outward righteousness. We can do away with that statutory law because we are living in the relationship law that is greater. It is a greater righteousness. And, brothers and sisters, here's the good news. If you need that grace, if you want that grace, it is available to you. God gives it to us freely. Join us in this church. Be part of us. Hear God's word. Receive the sacraments. Be baptized. Leave your sin behind. Eat at Christ's table and be unified to him. And pray. Pray that God will give you love for himself and the desire to do as he commands. Let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, we want that grace. 
We want the grace of your Spirit. We are greedy for it. Help us to love you more and more. Help us to love what you love, to hate what you hate, to become reflections of who you are, to become who you created us to be. You have promised, you have promised that you will do this, and we ask that you do it. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.